We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One note of housekeeping, we are winding down our Patreon at the end of October. There will be no more Patreon. We'll just be coming out on Wednesdays for free for everybody. Thank you so much to our Patreon family for supporting us through all this time. We love you. I thank you so much for the support. I look forward to continuing to rock on with this show with you for years to come. Okay, ready? What you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a wheel. I want to know something she's on. I think about Amy, won't you need it? I hold in it, things are rude real now. I have you seen you wanting you. Hey, it's a ratio. Okay, though. It's a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the fourth season. It was a departure in many ways from what you've done. Why make it a musical? Because I, I got to tell you the truth, Trey, because we talk the truth on this. Let's go. The fact is, man, is that I was really, really depressed <laughs> and I felt really stuck. And I felt like I needed to do something that was going to bring me some life because making the show was killing me. And making it a musical was going to give me some life. Every season of the show, I try to give myself as a filmmaker an opportunity that the industry hasn't given me or that I haven't been able to make happen. And telling stories through musicals has just been in my soul for a really long time, and I wanted to do it. And I also felt like there was a, a link between what I needed to say this season and musicals. Uh, with a musical, there's this like inherently performative aspect to it. People are literally bursting out into song, and there's an artifice to it. But that artifice also like expresses something that's true and maybe even truer than if the people were just talking to each other. I really wanted to comment on how performative racial politics has become, the ways in which like bullism in a marketplace kind of dictate the things we get to say, the things that, you know, we say that actually catch on with people. I felt there were a lot of similarities between doing a musical and those ideas. And so, you know, I had to go with the thing that was burning in my heart to do it. And I do understand that, you know, some people couldn't swallow it. I have to say that happens every season, though. Justin Simeon is the creator and director of the Netflix hit Dear White People, which has come to an end with a musical season that I liked a lot. Some people didn't. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the difficulty of making Dear White People and difficulty of making television at all. And... Justin's next project, 
Haunted Mansion, which he's super excited and proud about. This is a great look into the life and the work of an ongoing director, creator, who's trying to make black and queer and interesting work. And it's a challenge in white supremacist Hollywood. So let's go. It's my man, Justin Simeon on Touré Show. So I just want to reflect for a minute on the full circle that you have taken in your career in terms of, you know, you, you created this film, you know, that had success and it became a TV show. And now you've run a whole gamut of the show. So you've sort of, you know, you're, you're, this is like your first big baby has sort of like, <laughs> right. Like, like grown up and now like, you know, leaving the nest. Yes. Um, yes. H- how's that? How's that for you? Ready. I'm ready for, for, uh, my child to leave the nest and start paying their own bills and uh, <laughs> looking after themselves. Um, I mean, it feels, you know, on one hand, it feels great. It's an accomplishment. It's something that um, a lot of people, while I was making it, really didn't think was possible for it. Um, and at the same time, it's not, it's been really hard fought and uh, hard, you know, it's been difficult to earn that. Um, and you don't really talk about all that stuff on the junket or on the press tours. Uh, but it's been, um, I don't know. It's been kind of like a spirit quest or something. It's like, I I really grew up because of this, uh, in ways that were wonderful and ways that were really, really difficult. Um, but I, I don't feel a sense of regret or longing or sadness. Like I, I feel great that it is completed that yeah. this sort of initial burst of inspiration that got me in this industry, um, you know, has, has come to a stopping point. You're ready. You're ready to let it go. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause the beauty of, of the structure, you could have let, you know, Sam and them graduate usher in a new group of students. It's something of a new show and yet this, and yet not. And like, you know, start over, you know, with like a new clash, new inciting incident. Like, you know, you, you could have. Sure. And if making TV shows was like as simple of as simple as like waking up in the morning, be like, you know what I want to do today. I want to do this, (laughs) you know, sure. Uh, That's not how it's gone. (laughs) And, you know, it's not necessarily like, even my call that this was the end, but it feels right to me. I, to be honest with you, I don't know if I could keep making the show in the mm-hmm. way we've been making it. And um, specifically the way that TV works now, uh, at least in streaming world, is you do something, it comes out, you wait a few months, and then you find out if it's going to continue. That's mm-hmm. uh, not really quite how TV used to work before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that's a totally different environment to make a serialized TV show than uh, than other situations. So, you know, each one of these seasons for me has been like a massive movie. You know, it's been this giant sort of extremely long creative process where you're managing lots of different people, 
you're in a marketplace. So you're dealing with capitalism and white supremacy and all the shit that comes with that. Um, all of that stuff is very difficult to do and also try to maintain a pure kind of artistic statement. And, um, and it's been an honor to, to get to do that as, at the start of my career. But it's also not necessarily something that I, as an artist, as a person, needed to continue. I think my hope for it is already happening in that, like, we did introduce a format. I wouldn't call it a genre, but it's definitely a format. Um, a way to sort of take political discourse and the, the thoughts and feelings of a marginalized group and turn it into, you know, weekly entertainment, episodic entertainment. That is something we figured out how to do on and that a lot of shows are doing now uh, because we were part of, you know, the many artists that helped popularize that thing. Um, and I would love for there to be a dear, blank, uh, you know, ongoing universe. Uh, but I, I don't have the money to pay for that. So until somebody <laughs> offers that, um, you know, we're, we're all kind of shit out of luck there. Uh, <laughs> well, you talk about the impact. You mentioned the impact of white supremacy on what you have been doing, which is interesting to hear because this is one of the blacker shows on television. Sam and others say very aggressive black things. They stand up to whiteness in very aggressive ways. Uh, all, all, all but one off top of head, all but one of the major characters are, are black, right? So where has white supremacy, are you saying, or white privilege impacted blocked affected what you were trying to do because from the outside it looks like you were able to do pretty much whatever you wanted to do and that's the goal you know that's the goal of art you want it to feel polished you want it to feel cohesive um i mean let's start with the budget of the show <laughs> let's talk about um how much each of those episodes cost versus uh similar shows or shows that are frankly a lot less ambitious but with um less black casts uh you know uh let's talk about the fact that you know it, it is a show that's not only dealing with black people but it's dealing with queer people and a value is placed on that by the people who make tv and we had to do a lot with a little huh. and includes our releases that includes you know coming back uh, and all of the negotiations and all the people that you have to put in place to make an, a season of TV that includes the actual making of it itself. Um, this thing about white supremacy is pretty, it's pretty uh, pernicious and widespread. Uh, <laughs> and it's unconscious too. It's not like there's evil person to put it all on or anything like that. But, um, uh, it's, but it, it's been a labor of love, but it's been a labor. It really has. And, uh, and I think it's been worth it. But I, I would, you know, at the end of it, I can finally start to talk all of the things that I felt while I was doing it. <laughs> and yeah. those weren't all happy things, you know? So, well, so I imagine it feels like you're saying on the set, dealing with the actors and the rest of the crew and the team, that was, I mean, it's, it's hard because it's, it's hard creative work, but that was fulfilling dealing with some of the other things was hard. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, there's like a creative component to the, and all of the storytellers and all of the, all of that aspect of it is beautiful. 
Um, I, I certainly know it was important to me at the beginning and I feel like I did it as much as I could, you know, creating a safe space for people of color who typically don't get to do things uh, that are ambitious or specific or, you know, kind of out there and fun or interesting, like giving them a safe space to be amazing artists um, was a really important part of my process. But what comes along with that is that I, you know, as the creator and showrunner, also have a responsibility to kind of absorb the sort of shock that that causes uh, in the wider industry uh, and and sort of fight a lot of battles before that really gets down to the creatives that I want to give space to do their work. Um, and I'm not saying all this to complain. I'm saying this because, like, I, I, otherwise it would go unsaid and be yeah. erased uh, from the experience. And people just sort of think that, like, oh, you get a TV show, it's at Netflix, you can do whatever you want, you're just out there, you just... That's not what it is at all. <laughs> this is really. <laughs> I mean, like it, it, it. There is a perception that a Netflix show has less competition or less challenge because there's not a finite amount of like you know ABC. There's a finite real estate. If you're not pulling your weight on Tuesday at eight thirty, we will get something else that will mm-hmm. Netflix. You know, I mean, they don't even talk to us about the the metrics and what the numbers are. We we have no idea what, you know, like, what do you need to do to, like, keep them happy? And, like, you know, as long as some people are watching, people will keep watching this for a long time. So where does the, so then where does the challenge come when Netflix has infinite real estate and, like, just as long as some folks watch it, you're good? Well, that's not true. <laughs> just as long as some folks watch it, you're good. It's not true. Uh, I mean, there's, there's been many high profile shows, with great ratings, uh, great audiences that get canceled or don't come back, uh, shows that go on for some might say too long. Uh, it's a giant corporation that is producing billions of hours of content. Um, you know, it's bound to have some issues, you know, it's bound to be difficult from time to time. Uh, that perception of Netflix is not correct. Uh, not by any creator that I've spoken to that's worked there. Um, it, it's incredibly challenging. And I think that one of the things that is perhaps most challenging about it is that because there aren't metrics that are readily available for people, you do wonder, well, what is the bar here? Exactly. What bar are we trying to meet? And that isn't really defined uh, by the company for anybody, including at least for me. I mean, maybe some creatives have some insight, but um, I always had the feeling of we had to clear a bar that I also had to guess at what it was and where it was. Um, and, you know, you sort of, you, you look at other shows and you look at other creatives and it's not all equal. It's not like we're all being given the same money and we're not all being given the same resources or the same time. And there's really no explanation as to why. Um, you have to sort of sort that out yourself. Uh, it, it really is a, it's an interesting place. Cause like without Netflix, I don't think I ever would have made dear white people as a show. I don't think, you know, there were other places that wanted the show, but it just was a unique opportunity to do something like this. And I think a lot of creatives, especially who like are getting started, um, have had the benefit of the fact that Netflix makes so much stuff that they're willing to take chances on people. Um, but that, there's other stuff, too, <laughs> on the other side of that. Uh, there are other kinds of resources that you need besides just an opportunity uh, to make television, to make great television, um, and to make people feel good while they're making it. 
And, uh, and those are, are not equal. Those resources are not equal. There's the, so the, the metrics that you need to meet are invisible. They're not discussing with you. You, you know, this is our goal and you've met it. You haven't met it. It's just, it's an invisible bar that you have to get over. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Isn't that so fun? <laughs> and, and, and when you go to them and you ask them, like, so w- what do we need to do to, to be successful? And they say, just make a great show. And then you get a call, <laughs> like a couple months after you come out, and you get told, oh, you know, well, it did good. We're not sure. And we'll let you know. We're still doing, we're having talks. And, you know, there, it's, it's like anything <laughs> in Hollywood. There's a, a bunch of different faces to it. There's the face that you get when you're signing the deal and when you're coming into the room and when you're pitching it. There's a creative team, but there's also business teams. And Netflix is a big-ass place. Like, there's so many people there. Uh, You're constantly interfacing with and working with. I don't know what what goes on behind the scenes between them when when it's not me talking with them. Um, So, you know, we've had some challenges. We've had some moments of real um, conflict, I would say, between myself and teams at Netflix, I will say that I've been lucky that all the people I've been dealing with, you know, Ted Sarandos on down really have a passion for the show and really had a passion for the material and felt that I had something to say and were willing to listen, you know, when I was really having an issue, but I I wouldn't say that that made it easy, you know? Um, And, and, and yeah, I mean, I, Look at any of the shows that get canceled or don't come back and the fan outcry and there's the petition and then there's the, the denial of petition and, uh, and, and some of these shows are extremely popular shows with big stars, Emmy nominations, but they come back and no one is ever really told why. Uh, there, are, there are very different sets of competing for what that content should be, how it should function who it should play to, that is a mystery, I think, to most creatives that deal uh, with that studio, with uh, that network. So, all right, let's talk about the fourth season, um, which was really interesting. It, it was a, I liked it a lot. It was a departure in in many ways from what you've done, mainly because it became a musical. Um, that was that was tricky for some people to swallow. I, I dug it, and I, and I saw it like, you know, we want to do something a little different. Um, just, just for starters, why, why, why make it a musical? Well, you know, cause I, I gotta tell you the truth, Trey, cause we talked the truth on this. Let's go. The fact is, man, is that I, um, and I, I really don't want to be like, woe is me, but I, <laughs> I was really, really depressed <laughs> and I felt really stuck and I felt like, um, I needed to do something that was going to bring me some life because, making the show was killing me and making it a musical was going to give me some life. Every season of the show, I try to give myself as a filmmaker an opportunity that the industry hasn't given me or that I haven't been able to make happen. And uh, making, telling stories through musicals has just been in my soul for a really long time. And I wanted to do it. And I also felt like there was a, a link between what I needed to say this season and musicals. Uh, you know, this, this, um, with a musical, there's this like inherently performative aspect to it. People are literally bursting out into song. 
and there's an artifice to it. But that artifice also like expresses something that's true and maybe even truer than if the people were just talking to each other. I really wanted to comment on sort of uh, how performative, uh, you know, racial politics has become, uh, the ways in which like capitalism and a marketplace kind of dictate the things we get to say, uh, the things that, you know, we say that actually catch on with people. I felt there were a lot of similarities between uh, doing a musical and, and, and those ideas. And so, you know, I had to go with the thing that was burning in my heart to do. And I do understand that, you know, some people couldn't swallow it. I have to say that happens every season, though. You know, last season we did like kind of like a comfort food season. It was like very broadly comedic. And the, uh, the sort of issue of the season kind of sneaks its way in. People were upset about that. Season two, we kind of like took on a very like paranoid kind of film noir uh, sort of state of mind because, you know, I was sort of responding to the attack from trolls and bots and all these white supremacist groups uh, in season one. And people were upset with that because it wasn't it wasn't the same as the first. But we do it. I do this every season. <laughs> I do this to you every time. Uh, and I think part of that has to do with the fact I'm a filmmaker, too. And I, I get bored with having to tell the same story over and over, over again. Um, this show has always been a chef's table for me and I want to prepare things for people that maybe they, they can't get elsewhere or didn't expect to get. But the creator has to make themselves happy at some level. And you, you were depressed because of, because you had depression in your life or you were depressed because making the show was hard. <laughs> Well, because I'm black and queer. Hello. And I grew up in America. That's why I'm depressed. Um, no, I mean, making the show, yeah, making the show was killing me in a lot of ways. It really was. Um, it had become very difficult to do uh, for a number of reasons. And none of them are simple uh, or, or going to come out nicely in a soundbite. Some of them are not just about racism, just about cap. I mean, it's, it's complicated. I think anybody who's made TV knows what I'm talking about. It just gets to be a lot. And uh, each season, I had an opportunity to kind of bring something out that I needed to say and that I wanted people to see. And this season, that's what that was, you know, for me. I also thought it was it would be fun and I needed some joy, man. Like I, I needed to say something. I needed to express something. But I also wanted to come to work every day and have fun and 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 sort of be excited about what we were doing. And so. The truth is it came from like a need that I couldn't really deny. That was the only way I could do it. That was the only way I could come back and do it. Um, and the rest of it was about sort of making sure that that had something to do with what we wanted to say and that what we were trying to say could be amplified, you know, through that. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 
one of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. I loved that it was, that it became a pay on to the nineties and how mm-hmm. great the, you know, nine, the nineties were, um, culturally. And I also found myself impressed by the actors in that, you know, you had, you had bought into most of them, you know, three, four years ago, right. It's the same crew and they yeah. had been acting and now they have to dance and <laughs> not every actor is a great dancer, but suddenly it's they have to do this other thing too. And they were, they were able to rock that as well. Yeah. There's this like punk rock aspect to Dear White People since the movie that's like, get your fucking expectations off of me. Get them off of me. Get them off of me as a black show, as a black movie, as a black creator. Um, and, you know, every single season, I, I want to bring something that's going to surprise you. Like, I knew that, of course, Logan could dance because she, you know, was in a dance show, but I knew Ashley could sing. Um, she She has this like, musical number frankly in season two she sings tyrone um but i also knew marquee could tap dance i just knew that there was like this other these other sides to these people and if nothing else i wanted to create something where we would just leave it all on the fucking floor with all of the buzz and the recognition that the show gets and that they get it's not nearly close to what they deserve and i wanted to show them you know what I mean? Like, I wanted to show the people what these guys could do. Uh, and, uh, and so there was a little bit of that in it, too. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, that was kind of important to me to, to do it with, of course, the, the people. It, we, we had this sort of, like, fake audition. It, you know, it, I say, say fake because nobody was, like, going to lose their part or something. But we were just trying to figure out where everybody was at. 
at the beginning stages of this. And looking at the 90s songbook, you, it's the first time you get like singers, particularly black singers, where their personality is more important than, say, like their vocality. You know, um, you get Janet Jackson as a huge superstar. And it's not because she can sing better than Whitney Houston, but it's because her personality is exciting. It's being expressed through the way she sings and the way she dances and all this stuff. And so uh, the song just to fit what, the, what they were bringing at this audition space. I also kind of have an axe to grind, <laughs> which I always do. What's that? Uh, well, just about the fact that musicals in general are so white that they owe their entire existence to Black culture. Every piece of a musical that we love, down to tap dancing, the movements, all that stuff was mined from Black culture. And yet uh, Black people very rarely get to be uh, at the focus of a musical. There was something that I just felt very proud about putting Black people uh, in the center of a musical and celebrating Black culture in that way. Is there one uh, scene uh, that was harder just creatively to pull off than the others? Yeah, I think the um, the scene where Marquis is tap dancing in the gun range was mm. really difficult because, um, and I and I got to be honest, I don't know that I, I, I like it a lot, but I, I, I wish I had, days to shoot that you know if we were doing a movie or something or if we were white people we would have days to have shot that uh and uh it was difficult because there's so many tiny movements in a tap dance as a filmmaker i wanted to cover and i wanted to be able to show you that then show you that then show you that and then show you that it's very intricate what he was doing but it was also like this really emotional moment that is meant to sort of you know, we're seeing this guy who's been put upon by society time and time again, who's been struggling with PTSD from his experiences at this school. And he's turning that pain into something that has value for him, into an idea. And and so there was a lot that that had to accomplish. Uh, it wasn't just about being dazzled by Marquis' ability, but it also had to showcase, you know, Marquis' remarkable singing and dancing abilities um, but also make a political statement, make a satirical statement, have an emotional catharsis. There's just a lot going on in that scene. Um, but, you know, it was it was really satisfying, I have to say, to, to get to shoot it. And then to even just watching it, you know, it brings me to tears. It's a powerful scene. It's definitely a powerful yeah. scene. One of the things I loved about this season is that you brought in some new folks who are pushing the old folks who are like, you're not woke enough. You're not black enough. You're not going hard enough. Um, which I think is would would probably happen um, to some millennials from some zoomers or from to some Xers from millennials. Um, you know, especially the challenge that Sam faces you almost it's almost like the the show is like pushing her off the stage like the character's like coming <laughs> onto her show and telling her about herself she's like damn can, can i live i'm about to graduate yeah. like what the hell <laughs> yeah i mean who in this space doesn't can't relate to that <laughs> you know it's sort of um i mean it's what happens it's what happens in every generation i mean you can go all the way back to the harlem renaissance and see it the new kids on the block got to shoot down the old kids on the block because the thing is, is that we're all trying to challenge the status quo. And the minute you do that, you become the status quo. And it is really disorienting when black people on Twitter turn on you or like when an activist movement doesn't fuck with something you've said or done. It, it's like on top of all the other things that need to happen in that moment, communication, hearing what the other has said, yada, yada, yada. 
it's just disorienting because these are my people, right? I thought these were my people. And it happens every time. You go, you know, we sort of think about people like Martin Luther King in these sort of rarefied, sainted kind of ways. You know, watch any documentary or read any autobiographies or biographies, excuse me, about Martin Luther King. And he was constantly being challenged by newcomers uh, in the civil rights space. Um, like people did not like him. Black people did not fuck with him. They were angry with him. Uh, and and yet, what do you do? You don't abandon the movement. You don't abandon your um, your cause. You don't abandon your passions. So how do you make peace with that? Um, that's certainly uh, a part of getting older, I think, and being an activist and being a person who wants to make art about things that matter. Certainly something I've had to grapple with. I think it's something everybody on my staff and, and all the actors, we've all had to grapple with it. And, and, and you do it not just racially. It also happens uh, with the queer characters that they're like, you know, like you can be outer, you can be prouder, you can be bigger, you can have meaning to your stuff. Like don't, don't compromise at all, which is a really powerful message. Yeah, I think so. And it's, uh, you know, it's funny because the, the, the movie, you know, I, I remember sitting, I had this conversation with Tyler Perry and I've talked about this a couple of times where he called me up and was like, yo, do we have a problem? And I was like, no, absolutely not. Because my first, um, you know, the first thing you hear from the movie is fuck Tyler Perry. And I was doing at that time in my career, and I told him this, I was doing the very thing that like people will do to me now. And that Joy's character, Aisha, is doing to Sam. But you're cutting your teeth on the status quo. You're pointing out the things that aren't there yet. And that's how you're getting attention. And I think it's kind of part of the process. Uh, but at the same time, I felt really sad that I had done that to him. And, and especially because it had happened to me just as soon as the movie came out. I was sitting in Q&As where queer people were telling me that I was not queer enough and that the movie wasn't queer enough. Black wow. people telling me it was not radical enough. This is 2014. Right. You know, so uh, that's only uh, that that's only continued and that happens every year. And I, th I think it's OK that that happens. Um, but it is it's really weird to know what to do <laughs> when you're in the middle of that. And I, I needed to speak to that. It's interesting to hear about how many people uh, Tyler has called to be like, why are you talking about? Because he called me. Like I oh, saw, shoot. I saw what you said about me on CNN, and da -da -da -da, and we need to talk about this. And, and you know, we had a very fruitful conversation, and it changed the relationship. Um, same, yeah. Same. But 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 you know, there's there's many people that he picked up the phone and be like, why why what keep my name out your mouth? <laughs> well, it's you know what it is. It's like it's it's just really lonely, honestly, creating work and being a voice. <laughs> you know, like you're you're a voice. You know what I mean? It's like you you represent uh, you're speaking on behalf of people uh, when you talk. When I talk, I'm doing the same thing. And it can be really alienating and lonely, you know, and you want what you want is community with all the other people that are in the arena doing the same thing. He, he I don't think he wants community with the other creators the same way. OK, like I think you do. Right. Like I think, you know, I mean, S Spike does whatever. I, we, I mean, we wouldn't even talk about his art in, if it wasn't commercially successful, right? Mm. If, if Spike has a commercial bomb, we're still going to talk about it creatively. Maybe it was good. Maybe it wasn't good. He's he's in a different category, and you know he's he's different. He's different. He's he's not studying the art. You know, like I, you know, I could talk to you about like film history and TV history, and you're coming from. You know, he's not. That's not where he's coming from. So it's so when people 
like us attack him, he's like, I'm confused. Why are you, why are you bothering me? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, 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 I have a respect for it though, because like, I think he's in a lane that's valid. And then a lane that sort of like is necessary and needed. And that I feel, you know, in some ways is kind of, um, uh, who am I to sort of say that that kind of expression is not okay, or it's not as good as mine. Mine is different. Uh, the way I go about my work is different, but what I was called to do is different. Um, mm, mm, what I mm. think he was expressing to me. And- what does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, I can only speak to our conversation is this feeling of like, why are we fighting like crabs in a barrel? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I agree with him on that. I, I think a lot of times um, we're just fighting for the scraps and we're not actually we're not realizing how powerful we could be together. Uh, and, uh, you know. It's not it's not that Pollyanna-ish in, in practice, of course, but at least that's what, you know, that's what he was trying to express to me. And I, and I, I certainly don't disagree with that. One of the things that I love about this season um, that definitely challenged me about this season, uh, you, you, you have multiple uh, timelines going at once in terms of like you, we see them in the future. And yeah. so your production design um, has to design what will things look like in the future, which is really interesting. Sam has this mask that is freaking me out. Uh, you know, some of the clothes are freaking me out. And and it, it's not the t- like the future typically looks very like silver, very utilitarian, very useful and pragmatic. And you're like, no, the future. Talk about how you guys decided to design the future? Well, I, I wanted to show as little of it as possible for this very reason, because I don't... Because it's a challenge. I, yeah, I didn't think that we would frankly have the time or the resources to like have an intelligent, creative process by which we design the future, you know what I mean? And like all the ways in which it would be. So I, I wanted to, one, 
limit things to like this bookstore, which is, you know, pretty much a weed store with like a section of books in it uh, that we meet Lionel in the beginning or like um, try to keep it really simple so that, that the focus wasn't necessarily like what the future looks like, but what going to the future is, you know, in terms of a narrative sense. Um, but this is Afrofuturism. And the thing about Afrofuturism is that it's rambunctious, it's experimental because it doesn't happen very often. We're not even aware that that's how we see the future. It's not, it's no one announces it, you know, but like everything that takes place in the future is based on, you know, designs from a very specific group of people. And so you start to apply blackness to that and it produces all kinds of shit you just never thought of and never really saw before. That's to me what's so fun about Afrofuturism. And that's to me what's so important and political about Afrofuturism, because what it says is that like, yo, like, the future is going to have us in it, though, <laughs> and it's going to have all of this culture that y'all are not taking into account. And so you can't predict it and you can't tell me it's going to look like sleek gray all the time because your future doesn't have me in it. I'm going to put myself in your future and I'm going to bring my ideas to it. That's what Afrofuturism says. And so, you know, you talk about that mask, man, that mask came on set. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. Uh, Ceci, our costume designer, who is a genius. And I have, a, I have a habit of hiring people who I think are geniuses and letting them be them. And that mask came on set without being announced, <laughs> without uh, being shown to me before. And I had a moment with it. And I was like, you know what, though? I get it. I get it. If we're in a scenario where we're wearing masks for the next 10 years, if, and I pray to God we are not, but if we are, People are going to start to get really creative. <laughs> People are going to find a way to express themselves through those damn masks. And they're going to function in ways that we don't really think of now because um, they're fighting off things that we can't really imagine. And so, you know, if there was like a thread of logic that I found interesting uh, or that I felt I found complimentary, you know, I, I felt like it was my job to sort of let it be <laughs> and sort of let it be in the piece. Uh, and that's really how my production designer, Greg Grande, uh, Ceci, my costume designer, uh, approached it. And, um, and I think we got some really weird shit in there as a result. <laughs> and I, I couldn't definitely, be happy. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. You know, to you, 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 you're pushing, you're looking forward to, uh, gender boundaries being pushed or at least sartorially. Um, mm -hmm. I'm forgetting the brother's name, but the light skinned brother who ends up with a gigantic, Earring. Yeah, Jamar Al, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Like he's he's straight, but he's now he's rocking a gigantic earring. So yeah, I mean, he's you, you know you're skirt. Yeah, yeah. So you guys are saying like, hey, you know, like we're gonna continue to, you know, break down the walls. That, I mean, it's happening whether we like it or not. You know what I mean? Like the young generation, they're wearing skirts on the red carpet. We were wearing harnesses that used to only be for like gay sex clubs uh on the red carpet. We are Gender is uh, being deconstructed as we speak. Um, and one of the many things that I, I have to do with my work because it's, it's essential to my personal survival is I have to build bridges between Black communities and queer communities um, because I'm both of those things. And coming up in the world, neither side, neither community really um, knew what to do with me. And I didn't always feel at home in either community. And so for me to just feel like I can be free and be myself, I have to build these bridges inside. And my work does that too. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, and I, I think maybe people aren't totally conscious of it, but I think 
some of the why is this a musical animus is kind of about that, to be honest with you. Uh, there's a queer undertone to Dear White People that's always been there, and it gets a little louder each season. And not everybody wants that. But too bad. Like, this is... But everybody doesn't want me. <laughs> but God damn it, I get to be here, uh, and I get to express myself. And frankly, I think queer and Black communities, have we've depended on each other for a really long time in this country, uh, and I think uh, it's really sad to see, you know, division. So I'm always trying to build a bridge between those two communities. I mean, when you started this journey with Dear White People, you were making an independent film. And, yeah. And now the success of this has opened you up. And you, you right, like you can get a meeting with pretty much anybody now. You can pitch pretty, you know, pretty much anything you want to anybody. It may, it may or may not get bought, but like... No, doors are pretty much open to you now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly has paved a path. Um, and it made it so that I don't have to be on fucking social media all the time just for people to to think I'm important enough to take a meeting with or something. And, uh, and I, believe you me, I have not wasted, I'm not a fan of wasting any opportunities like that. Which <laughs> so just, you know, kind of me where I'm at right now. So, okay, you don't want to waste the opportunity. What is the dream that you want to bring to a small or large screen in the next five, six years? Well, the dream I'm working on right now is the Haunted Mansion for Disney. And um, that was your that was your dream. What I'm getting to do with it was it's not my script, you know, someone named Katie Dippold wrote the script and I'm I'm sort of polishing it and, and doing sort of for the studio and for the, the actors and stuff. But to do something on that big a canvas absolutely has been my dream. Uh, to do something with a lot of heart uh, that I think is saying something really true and really important, but at the same time is entertaining and sort of broadly appealing. And so it can be financed uh, at this level and we can take the time to shoot it this way. And we can sort of really like, you know, like I, I, like, you know, I, start, I start working on Monday. We're shooting, uh, you know, three-eighths of a page on Monday. Do you know how crazy that is? <laughs> like, three-eighths of a page on Monday? That's all we're, like, not to say that's all we're doing. We've got a lot to do. It's got special effects. We have a lot to do. But, you know, dear white people or any TV show, normally you're like eight pages a day, 12 pages a day. You know, you got you to gotta go. And um, I, I have a lot of ambition as an artist. I want a lot of canvas space as an artist. Um, and so to be able to work at that level is really exciting. Uh, but there's also a bunch of small stories in me too. There's a bunch of small stories and personal stories that I simply have not had enough power to tell. Um, and so there's like a dual track when you work in Hollywood, cause it's not just about like expressing yourself, like gaining influence and power so that you can put it together the way you need to, to, um, you got to kind of work both of those angles, you know? Who's your star in Haunted Mansion? Lakeith Stanfield. Wow. He is such a great artist. I am He's amazing. I'm always surprised by his choices. I'm always moved by his intensity. He is a yeah. true artist as an actor. It's true. And and such a vulnerable artist and sweet person and kind person and uh somebody who really brings themselves to his work. I mean, I told him about Judas and the Black Messiah. He had 
an impossible job, which is to make us feel empathy for this character who is literally as he portrays his and yet by the end of that movie, I'm totally caught up in him and I, I care about him and I care about what happens to him. That is kind of an impossible task. And so Lakeith sort of finds a way to pull us into spaces and characters that we otherwise would be repelled from. That's a really powerful for an actor. Not everybody can do that. Um, and uh, I'm just so honored to be working with him because, you know, it's a Disney movie. It's fun. It's, it's got set pieces. It's, it's going to be really entertaining, but I take my work really seriously. You know, I don't, I'm not here to just make, I'm not here to just like entertain. Like I, I really, I, I feel what I do on a really deep level. And so does he. And um, it's just really fun to kind of be in an environment where we actually get to do that and so to fulfill our ambitions on the scale that we want to. You're, um, you're saying you don't want to just entertain. You want to what? I think that, um, and I don't mean this, you know, in a culturally appropriate way. I don't know what other word I should use, but I think that storytellers really are shamanic in some ways. Mm. Um, I do. I, I feel like before we had filmmakers and writers and poets and painters, shamans, and we had people and, and the tribe whose job it was to sort of connect us to our spirit and to heal us and to sort of um, help us work through things that, you know, thinking about them or going to the doctor or eating the right things can't do. Life is really complicated. It's really difficult, especially for people of color uh, to navigate. And so, you know, part of my job is to heal. I mean, that sounds really Pollyannish, but it's, it's to heal. My, my, when I make something, it has to work in the same way a dream does. You know, when you have a when you have a really powerful dream, like something's gotten worked out in your subconscious while you were asleep in a way that it couldn't couldn't get worked out in everyday life because everyday life is too specific, it's too literal, it's too practical. Uh, sometimes you have to go to dreams and art to really move emotionally past uh, something that's going on in your life. And I provide people. I mean, what a storyteller does is you provide them these dreams really to get lost in. And they can work out some shit that they couldn't work out in in a, in a different place. Um, and I take it really seriously. But that's what I that's what I'm here to do. Yeah. If you got if you do your work right, you take me to a place, to a situation that I may or may not have experienced. And I see can start to see how would I how do other human beings handle that? You know, what would yeah. I do? And, you know, what feelings might. I feel my other people feel in encountering this love situation, this dramatic situation, this, you know, emotional, whatever, whatever it might be. So yeah, it's, it's, you, you can help, you could help if you do it right. You could help introduce me to a deeper self. Yeah, absolutely. That's the best. That's what gets me up in the morning about what I do. Um, and the, and the funny thing about that is that it doesn't always feel good. You know, like a massage is a very enjoyable form of self-care. Uh, getting a shot may not be, <laughs> but they are both good for you, uh, depending on the shot, depending on the kind of massage, uh, you know, and is, uh, I think I, at its best, it's healing. Um, but it doesn't always feel good. And I, and I, I tend to gravitate towards the art that is you know, there's a sugar in with the medicine, but there's also something challenging about it. Um, you know, I like art to kind of give me a bit of a jolt. Like I like leaving a story, not just feeling comforted, but feeling like 
I, I expanded some part of me. Like I'm thinking a little bit bigger than I, I thought when I came in there because I had to grapple with something uh, when I watched it. So there's there we talked a bunch about the exhaustion with the dear white people situation in specific, but you still love this career. Oh my God. It's the, it's what I'm, it's what I'm meant to do. You know, I get frustrated when people, you know, I, I had to come with this metaphor to sort of work out what, what I'm frustrated about. So please forgive me because it's a little pretentious, but uh, you know uh, I get frustrated because I provide a chef's table sometimes and that when you go to a chef's table, you don't really get to choose the menu. You, you trust that the chef is going to put something together and you're there because you want to you experience the chef's point of view. And they're here to show you things. And the reason you do that is because, like, you don't like all the courses. Like, if you, you might like one or two of them a lot and you can expand your palate. You can expand your pleasure. Um, and you can, like, experience the world in this guy's point of view or this woman's point of view in a way that you just didn't expect when you got there. What I get frustrated is when people show up to a chef's table and go, well, why didn't you make me a cheeseburger? <laughs> That's really frustrating because you can get a cheeseburger anywhere. But um, I didn't wake up in the morning to make a cheeseburger. You know what I mean? So I, I sort of, uh, that's not what God called me to do. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it can be frustrating when people come to you for something that you didn't really show up to give them. Uh, but at the same time, I, it's nothing else I'd want to do, man. It's, it's, it was in me before there was a me. I don't know how else to put it. Like I wanted to be a filmmaker before I had a word for it. Um, certainly nobody in my family thought of that as a job. It wasn't an influence from anyone or thing. It was there, uh, since I was a little kid. So I don't think that's going anywhere. Wow. What can you tell us about Lando? Not a thing. <laughs> Not a damn thing. <laughs> That's the way they do it, man. <laughs> but you are working on something for Disney about Lando Calrissian. I worked on something for Disney for about a year and a half, or for Lucasfilm, rather, which is part of Disney, uh, for about a year and a half uh, on Lando. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of moving parts over there. So, uh, while we figure out if other parts can come into play, I'm doing something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, congratulations. Okay. I, I feel, you. uh, congratulations on this, on getting, on wrapping the whole dear white people experience on launching into the haunted mansion experience. Um, my God, if if there was somebody who wanted to have your career path, somebody like me, one is like, I want to do some TV, maybe a movie, da, 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 da. What would you tell them? This career is crazy. Like, Hollywood is nuts, you know. Everyone in Hollywood is really good at performing. And so you literally are in a funhouse mirror all the time where you're not sure who's telling you the truth and if this is going to happen or that. Or how, you don't know. So you really have to build a strong sense of self. You really, it forces you to do that. You, you hear about all these people that sort of like, you know, uh, fall into these scandals or have drug uh, addictions or do, you know, it's because like this, this, it'll kill you if you don't have a really solid sense of self. It is the most important thing, to be honest. Uh, it is more important than creative inspiration because creative inspiration without a solid sense of self will kill you. It will kill you in Hollywood. Um, what Hollywood asks you to do is take your personal 
like divine energy and spirit and turn it into something that's going to make money. It's a really, it's not a very wholesome process <laughs> unless you uh, take great care to take care of yourself and, and how that process unfolds. I know it's really esoteric, but, um, but it's true. It's, it's true as things I, I know. It's one of the things I know for sure, as Oprah would say. Thanks so much to Justin for a great interview and thanks to you for listening. Toray Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. and Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Toray and on Instagram at Toray Show. Toray Show is written by me, Toray, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shonda Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.